Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to say a big, big fan of your work and your research. Um, really enjoyed your books. Um, I first uh, heard about you through uh, Lex Friedman's podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, <laughs> the, I, I think that's where a lot of the younger people find you. It's not through your, your academic research or even your books per se, but through those, you know, popular podcast platforms. I think those are, those are really good for people like yourself to go on. So that younger people like myself can find you. Um, and I, and I'm still an undergrad by the way, I'm 21 and, uh, I've, I've taken interest in a lot of the things you've written about and, and I'm reading lots of books on it, but I would say over the last few years, um, uh, seeing people like yourself on those kind of podcast platforms has helped open the doors to further inquiry into psychology, neuroscience and other related topics. So that, that's how I, that's how I found out about you and read your books, uh, seven and a half lessons about the brain and how emotions are made. And, well, uh, yeah, just, well, just wanted to say that I've really yeah, enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Yeah. So are, are you still um, a professor right now? Are you still teaching? I don't teach, but I am a professor. I run a large lab at two different locations. Um, and I have about, you know, 25 full-time people in my lab. Um, and, uh, which I co-direct with another scientist. And then, you know, before COVID, we had about a hundred undergraduates per semester in our lab right now, obviously we're a little, um, we have uh, somewhat fewer because, uh, we're just starting up research again, but, um, I haven't really been in the classroom for a number of years, actually. Mm. Mm. And you're Canadian, right? I am Canadian by birth. I also, um, I have dual citizenship in the United States now. Okay. I assume you, you moved during your academic career? I moved, yeah, I moved for my first academic job. So that was about 30 years ago. Okay. Are, are you, do you have any experience with the University of Toronto and all the stuff they're doing, their, their, their research? Well, I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, but that was 40 okay. years ago. So mm. I don't really have, I have colleagues at the University of Toronto, but um, I don't collaborate with anybody there at the mm. moment. Have you ever run into uh, Jordan Peterson from University of Toronto? Well, he's not there anymore, but have you guys ever crossed paths? Um, uh, you know, we certainly haven't, have not crossed he was at harvard when um i moved to boston and um we have not crossed paths in the public uh science or public discourse arena i wouldn't call what he does science but um in the public discourse arena arena of public discourse we have not crossed paths um i think he made a i guess he he or somebody who you, who runs his account made a tweet about an article that I uh, wrote for Scientific American, which had some interesting commentary. Um, and there was some back and forth on Twitter about it. You know how, you know how things can be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, I do know. Yeah, no, yeah, he, he he does run his own account on on Twitter. So mm-hmm. I, I, whatever was tweeted out was from him. Yeah, yeah, I was just asking because um, I'm also very interested in his work and uh you know you him sam harris um a few of these other people i've been reading a lot of your guys's work and comparing and contrasting and seeing similarities and overlaps even though they're very very different fields in, in many ways but um 
it, it's it's good to see sometimes when um, people in your field can can interact with each other and share well, ideas. I've, yeah, I've been on Sam's podcast. We had a really great time, actually. Oh, you um, did? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, did did you guys talk about free will at all? We might have. I don't. You know, it was. Um, I've I've done hundreds of podcasts at this point, so um, you know, I do probably two or three a week. So it's hard to remember exactly what we talked about, but I'm sure we did. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah that, that, that's a topic I, I'm thinking a lot about these days. Um, and your book, both your books go into that a little bit with uh, talking about how our brains engage in prediction based on our past experiences and influences and our environment. Our brain decides what we're going to do in any given moment before we're consciously aware of it. Is that right? Yeah, that's not just my work. I mean, there's a whole paradigm really in neuroscience, which is slowly making its way into psychology, but also in engineering and um, in physiology, which looks at the predictive capacities of the nervous system of a brain um, and um, tries to model them, tries to understand the way that predictions are implemented in the neural architecture of the brain and the rest of the nervous system. Um, and so I certainly write about that for the public because I think it's a really interesting and um, powerful set of findings that people should know about. But it's, it's um, we're talking about, uh, at this point, several thousand paper peer-reviewed papers not so it's I couldn't take credit just you know right. for yep. that it's not it's not all my work and in fact some of the most important work has been done by philosophers and um and you know uh engineers and so on mm. yeah well it, it, it is very interesting and I've been reading a lot about it from, from different sides um I've also been talking to Bobby Azarian I don't know if you know about his work and research in complexity science and um, he engages with the topic of free will quite a bit. Hello? 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 Oh, you're back now. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, was All that right. was that a Wi-Fi connection or something? It must have been, yeah. No we worries. Have, our house is being painted. Our house is being painted outside, so who knows? You know, we we sometimes have these little glitches while, <laughs> while the stuff's going on. But anyway, sorry about that. Yeah. Sure. You mentioned in both your books. So, 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 based on this idea of a prediction, in any given moment when we're making decisions, we're not actually consciously deciding in that moment. Like if we're, let's say, driving on a highway and we're about to get into a crash and we suddenly steer our car to the right, in that moment, 
when we do that, our brain already decides before we make that decision? Well, I think it's important to um, make a distinction between um, driving, for example, on the road, maybe in a place that you've driven before or maybe in a place that you haven't, but, you know, where the driving rules are familiar to you, like you're not driving in a country where cases, um, your driving feels pretty automatic to you. um, And that's because like reference signals to control your, the internal uh, motor systems of your body, like your heart, your lungs, you know, your immune system and so on, which support the skeletal motor movements, your eyes moving, um, your limbs moving and so on. And, and copies of these motor signals are sensory predictions, what your brain expects to see, to hear, to feel, to smell, um, in the event that these movements are executed. And the sense data that comes back uh, from the sensory services of your body um, are if somebody, you know, cuts you off or someone darts out in front of you unexpectedly, um, what what it what appears to happen is that your brain also sends a set of what, the same kinds of signals but doesn't wait for the sense data to confirm them it it just executes the response um so when something very unexpected occurs that is potentially life-threatening your brain's not going to wait around to um uh check if its predictions are correct. It's just going to act as if they are. Mm. And then that's going to be before we're consciously aware of what we're doing, right? Well, it usually, it usually takes, depending, you know, it depends on what, what kind of movement you're talking about, but motor planning can take up to, you know, 30 seconds, um, before the move begins, before the movement is executed. So even if it's, um, you know, three or 400 milliseconds, that's before itself aware um, of the movements and, and which would, which would correspond to your conscious feeling of an intention to move. So to you, it feels, you know, like a reaction, like a reflex, because you don't experience the intention to move. You're, your your body just moves but that's because most of the control of the motor systems in your body happen outside your outside your awareness your brain doesn't make itself aware for the most part of those um of the um initiation of those motor uh control plans Mm. And would it be, is it a similar idea for when we're, say, sitting down and writing on a laptop, writing an article or an essay or whatever, and we're we're coming up with words, we're we're forming together a sentence, 
like like the words that are coming like i was walking down the street and i loved looking at this beautiful tree like i just i just made up that sentence it, is that the sentence that i just formed were those words being decided before i was consciously aware that i was going to say i was walking down the street and i looked at this beautiful tree well i think you have to remember rav how long have you been speaking english for uh so i'm 21 so what 16 17 years i guess maybe okay, you start so yeah for 16 or 17 years years your brain has been exposed to um statistical patterns in of sounds and with contingencies about what follows what in english and those contingencies those patterns are different in different languages but but really within three months, a, a, a newborn baby can start picking up those contingencies and using them even if they don't know what words mean. They just understand the statistical regularities of sounds and the relationship of those statistical regularities to actions in the world. This is something a three-month-old can do. So mm -hmm. your brain has had, you know, millions of opportunities to learn the statistical patterns and so the frequency with which any word, it's not like, um, you know, you're talking about conditional probabilities um, that are not only about which words follow which words, but your brain doesn't process signals independently. It's processing ensembles of signals. So it's the, you know, conditional probabilities of which sounds will follow which sounds when you're body is in a particular position and you're in a particular location and you're you see a particular set of things and you smell a particular set of things and your physical state is a particular you know your your the sensory state of your body is in a particular state like your brain is basically processing these large ensembles of signals as patterns and these patterns are what determine your actions to, to a large extent, it's, it's not deterministic, it's, it's probabilistic. And you can think about the sensory changes in your body and in the world as helping to select those patterns. So, which mm. are the predictions. So when I give a talk, you know, I sometimes will say to I lead people to, to, I use an example that's very much like the one that you just did. And I say, you know, right now it seems to you like you're reacting to everything that you hear me say, but imagine your surprise um, if you learned that, no, I think, I think the way I say it is, um, and, um, but actually your brain is predicting every single word that comes out of my, and then I just stop. Mm. And everyone in the room goes, mouth. And I say, yeah, and imagine your surprise if, if I had said some other orifice of my body, you know, that words were leaking out of, Mm. you know some other part of my body and then everybody laughs because they know i'm actually yeah, yeah. saying out of my ass right and <laughs> it, and but it's because they have the statistical knowledge because their brains right so i'm not saying that um that everything is deterministic but i am saying that um you know it's not a random ensemble of signals. Your whole life has been an opportunity to learn patterns that, um, you know, that, um, that are repeatable and your brain 
that that that's what predictions are but that's also what your thoughts and your feelings and your actions are they're just patterns of signals mm. yeah and in your how emotions are made book you remind me you you have that sentence where the, the what we're going to predict is to, is way off from what you actually wrote something about princesses once upon a oh, time yeah. in some area the princesses are bleeding to death it's like whoa holy shit didn't expect that <laughs> exactly that's the whole point right yeah. um and in fact you know there's a whole idea about what jokes are and you know that that they're they're things that have an optimal unexpectedness right or an optimal novelty they can't be too far out there or then they become non sequiturs but they um which you know some people find funny um mm. uh, my husband is a really big fan of zippy the pinhead i personally mm don't find it all that funny. Um, but jokes are, um, you know, you're basically uh, walking the edge of, of uh, less predictability. You know, you're introducing something, putting two things together that are unusual or uncertain or novel in a way that people find unexpected and uh, sometimes funny. Mm. And uh, you, you give a few examples in both your books about how sometimes you make wrong quote-unquote wrong predictions but they're actually the right predictions given the experiences we've had so so you know if, if somebody um i'm trying to think of an example close to me but just a generic example one that's used a lot in in uh indian literature um <clears throat> like like uh, <clears throat> give me one second um, one example that's used a lot within Hindu philosophy is the idea of you see a snake and you, you're suddenly, you're afraid, you're adrenalized and you're terrified, but then you, on closer, on closer inspection, you realize it's just a rope. And that kind of idea of people who've had a lot of traumatic experiences in their life, um, who are going around making predictions oftentimes are more reflexive or more fearful about ordinary things, but those predictions that they might make. And you, you give one in the book, I think, of uh, somebody who sees um, uh, a, a group of boys in a forest or a jungle, and they mistake that for a group of guerrilla fighters, and they're about to shoot somebody who is um, in the military, I believe. A am I saying that right? You are. You just gave it away, though. I don't yeah. usually talk about it like that because oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's sort of, you know, that you're giving away the reveal before you tell the story. But yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Um, yeah. So 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 you make the point that that kind of prediction, it's not wrong. It's right based on the experiences that that person has. And so people who are really traumatized, who've been through, you know, parental neglect, sexual abuse or, or or even more ordinary things like your your parents are fighting all the time or they didn't care about you as much or you didn't get the the love and compassion that you needed as a kid um you know going going around in the world sometimes you're you're making predictions that that are wrong or rub people the wrong way or are jarring but they're correct based on a, a brain science perspective given what you've experienced growing up well, I don't really, I don't, I really wouldn't phrase it in terms of correct and incorrect, right and wrong. That's kind of black and white in a way that I don't think is helpful here. And I think that a better way to think about it is the following, that if you 
So let's take, um, this is actually a true story. So it's not that I didn't make this story up that, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, after reading an, um, uh, an opinion piece that I wrote for the New York times, um, about, um, uh, prediction and when people, you know, there are cases where people see guns where there are no guns and, um, sometimes shoot and kill people needlessly by mistake um, because the person holding the gun saw a gun in the other person's hand and, um, and then executed a response, which was to pull the trigger. And someone wrote to me um, who 30 years before he sent this email had been in the Rhodesian army. So he actually himself had been a lawyer who worked on behalf of this is a you know while apartheid was still uh, in existence and he was working on behalf of you know what he of people he thought of as freedom fighters and um, uh, black African nationals who were you know being uh, under experiencing terrible prejudice under under apartheid and he was a lawyer he acted as a lawyer on their behalf and then got drafted into the Rhodesian army mm -hmm. and um and he had never really held a gun and you know now he was in charge of uh you know a military unit um and himself carrying an assault assault rifle and was in the forest one day um, on exercises and it was his turn to be at the front and he um heard rustling and um you know on basically raised his his rifle took aim flipped the safety catch off very all of this was very automatic and um put his finger on the trigger and was about to pull and uh the his buddy behind him put a hand on his shoulder and whispered in his ear, don't shoot. It's just a boy. And in fact, this guy saw, he saw gorillas, right? Freedom fighters, but from the perspective of the unit he was in, it, they would have been guerrilla fighters. He, he saw a bunch of military guys with AK-47s. And in fact, what was in front of him was a, a 12 year old boy with a staff and a bunch of cows that it's not that what he saw was correct or incorrect. It was clearly incorrect what he saw because right. the, you know, the, there were cows there, not, you know, uh, not soldiers. And the kid was not carrying an AK 47. He was carrying a stick, but this guy literally saw a gun where there was no gun. And he mm -hmm. was, that experience for him was very jarring because it made him question his entire, um, you know, life. I mean, that he had spent all of this time um, defending people and, who, you know, who were um, mistreated by the system in very profound ways. That's where his mm -hmm. sympathies lay and that's where all of his effort lay. Um, but yet he uh, he almost shot a boy, basically, um, uh, and, you know, who had dark skin. And he this made him wonder, well, do I have some deep seated racism that I didn't know about? And, you know, it really mm -hmm. shook him up. And 
Um, anyways, for years, he felt incredibly guilty. And then he, and, you know, he, he moved to, um, the United States and, uh, you know, became, uh, um, I think a civil rights lawyer and, um, continued on with his work, but he always had harbored this guilt, um, because he thought that his actions indicated something really deeply wrong. But in this particular case, his brain was just acting normally the way brains act, which is that he had just spent months and months and months of training, um, learning how to shoot a weapon, how to protect himself, the, uh, you know, from people who he particularly didn't see as his enemy, but who would see him as the enemy. Right. And he, so he was in a situation where he, his, he believed that his physical life was in danger. His priors, if you will, were, um, um, set by his training and um, what he saw and the actions that, you know, the actions that his brain prepared and what he saw um, were understandable based on his priors. Um, it's, it's, there wasn't anything wrong with his brain. Similarly, if somebody is suffering from PTSD and they see and hear mm -hmm. things that, that aren't physically present, that, that isn't necessarily an indication. It doesn't mean that what they, I wouldn't use like true or false or good or bad. It's, you know, it's understandable basically that their brain is using a model of the world, which doesn't apply, hasn't been updated to where they currently are. Their brain is still running a model that, um, you know, using predictions based on past experiences, that's what we call running a model of a world that hasn't been updated yet to reflect where they are right now. And so it's understandable why they would experience what they do and act the way they do. Um, it's, um, I just think it's a much more respectful um, way of understanding human experience and human action. Because, you know, in psychiatry, the main and psychology, the main model for, for PTSD and depression and, and other kinds of struggles is this idea that, you know, you've got these so-called inborn emotion circuits, which are hyperactive, and your cognitive control circuits are weak. And so you're you know, your rational cognitive part of your brain can't control your overly emotional part of your brain. And so you're mentally ill or you're immoral if you, you know, <laughs> if you don't bother to try. And I just think that's just a really, well, I think it's, you know, it's, um, it's incorrect from a neuroscience standpoint. You don't have, you know, ancient emotion circuits buried deep in some, you know, ancient part of your brain. You don't have an inner beast like that. And mm -hmm. you and, you know, there are no cognitive parts of your brain <laughs> that are um, specifically for rationality or cognition. That's just also not um, not a correct way to understand how brains work and what their parts do. But um, mm -hmm. but it's also, I think, a really disrespectful way to um, to think about people who are struggling with. Um, mood related, you know, symptoms or suffering from, you know, challenges. I just don't, it's, it's not a, it's not, it's not like they have an inherent weakness. They're, 
brains have been wired. Your brain is wired to your world and your world is from your brain's perspective, your body and the outside world. And so that's what your brain knows. It knows it's wired to what, what has occurred in the past and uses that past as a set of priors or preconditions for what to expect in the present. And that's just a very rational way to behave, even though it may mean Yeah, yeah. This this reminds me of some of the reporting I've done in Minneapolis um, after George Floyd and after um, two or three hundred officers left the force in Minneapolis. Homicides shot up uh, a, a large percentage and and uh, reached historic highs. And I, I interviewed some of the people there with what was going on, and a lot of people were leaving the community. Um, a lot of people were were uh, uh, a lot of people were were coming home at earlier times, <clears throat> and then still are, and aren't engaging with the the normal activities outside and and letting their kids play as much outside because of the 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 shir- the, the surge and gun violence and whatnot. And there's one guy I was talking to. Um, this is reporting I've done in the New York Post. His name is Don Samuels, and he was telling me about. A little boy I think he was 12 or 13 and he developed PTSD because of the the, the surge in homicides after George Floyd and after um, a lot of police officers left the force and and homicides shot up um, there were um, the, the the frequency of gunfire increased um, pr- pr- pretty radically and so did this kid um, after a, a couple of occasions where he heard loud gunfire and was really afraid for, for a long time, he kept on wetting the bed and he kept on um, being fearful throughout the day. And especially at night, he couldn't go to sleep because he was worried about this gunfire. And eventually he saw a psychologist in the area and they said, you have to leave this part of Minneapolis because your, your child has PTSD and he keeps on overreacting or sometimes, um, or sometimes being afraid of gunfire on, on a particular night when that sound is actually not not happening. It's not there. Actually, isn't any any gunfire nearby. But he might hear a different sound, or or, or he may hear no sound at all. But he's in this hyper vigilant mode where he's afraid constantly. Um, but that's just his brain uh, predicting the the sound of gunfire and all the preceding fear of, of his own life and his parents and whatnot. So that that I think that's that, that that's a pretty good example of. of disorders and whatnot. I think so. I mean, I think it's important to realize that, you know, your brain is trapped in a dark silent box called your skull. And it's only receiving sense data with, you know, from your eyes and your ears and, you know, from the sensory surfaces of, of your body, um, which tell, which those signals, which it receives are the outcome. And so when there's a bang, that bang could be a door slamming. Or a gunshot. And actually, your brain has to make. 
order movement and for plan for action. So most people, when they hear gunshot, don't know that it's a gunshot. They just hear a bang. They don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, their, their priors actually come from, you know, as I said, the context in which they're in. So, um, if a gunshot doesn't sound distinctively always like a gunshot, you, you have to have a lot of expertise to know that, that, that particular banging sound is a gunshot and gunshots can sound very different depending on, you know, where you are and, and this is around. So your brain is always guessing and, it's not un it's not unreasonable that if the base rate of bangs actually being gunshots is high or just there's been a dramatic event where a banging sound was a gunshot and someone died um in front of you or around you or someone who was close to you it's not unreasonable for your brain to make a guess based on past experience um, you know, in the movies and in television shows and in, um, uh, you know, uh, video games, it's always it it's always seems very clear, you know, like who the enemy is and where the gun is and what the gunshot sounds like. But in real life, it just doesn't work like that. And people are ill prepared. Actually, the priors that they have, you know, in general from movies and television and and games and so on it don't really prepare them for what gunfire sounds like and looks like in the real world um so in this case um you know the you could say that um i'm not denying that it's um it's not helpful for this little boy to um, predict that every or react as if every banging sound, unexpected banging sound is a gunshot. It's it's problematic for his well-being, but it, you mm. wouldn't call it. I, I just wouldn't call it an illness. I, I think his his brain is doing what brains do, which is mm -hmm. make a prediction about the immediate future based on what has been salient in the past. That's what all brains do, uh, all neurotypical brains. That are functioning properly. Yeah, are are you familiar with? Normal, how our culture perpetuates. Oh normal. yeah, the myth of normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I, I haven't actually read that book, but I I will say that um, that that I, those ideas have been around for a long time. You know that um, variation is the norm when it comes to humans. And um, mm -hmm. the idea that there is a, you know, a fine, uh, a very clear demarcation between what's normal or average and what's atypical is is just really, <laughs> mm. um, it is a myth indeed. Mm. Yeah. And in in your book, you write that. cultural etc cetera, etc cetera. and um you, you you write how sometimes our brain can be a really bad scientist and 
and and this I think relates to to mental illness. Um, how um, your your view of reality may not change despite an overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And I'm, I'm going to actually I'm going to tie this to the area of psychosomatic pain or chronic pain. Um, I don't know if this is something you've looked into specifically, but this is something that tens of millions of Americans struggle with, millions of Canadians as well, of having chronic physical pain um, in various parts of their body um, where there's no there's no physiological diagnosis or there's no structural abnormality. It's just horrible pain all the time and and, and doctors don't know what to do with it. But it's just, it, it, it's pain that, 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 that feels like very real pain. It, it, it disrupts your life. It, it can prevent you from doing a number of things. And I've been struggling with it for a few years now, um, really over the past year. And I've talked to a few experts in this area, like uh, Alan Gordon, Dr. Howard Schubiner, and it's it's interesting how how in, in 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 my case, for example, without going into too much detail, it's like I, I feel a, a painful sensation in my chest. That's that's one thing I've been struggling with, like a lot of anxiety and a lot of chest pain. And I've and I've done all the the the, the medical tests, and nothing has showed up. Uh, no, no cardiac damage or any other issues, but you you feel pain and no matter how much you know that there's nothing wrong with you or if you're having a panic attack, a lot, a lot of people uh, in my generation are, are having panic attacks and feeling anxiety. It's when, when you feel that rush of anxiety and you feel that you, you feel your heart pounding and you feel discomfort in your stomach or your chest or other parts of your body. Sometimes even though you, when you just feel that pain, for whatever reason, whether it's caused by an external event or something internally going on, um, e- even if you're not something is going to happen, even if there's no logical rationale for having that belief. But th- that that goes to your your, your point about our. our view of what's going on uh, d- d- despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And I think that that's a, a, a brief painful sensation and suddenly they're, they're, they're super worried and their amygdala is maybe firing and they're suddenly they're, they're Your amygdala is not the fear center of your brain or the worry center of your brain. Area of active research. And I have a, a section, a fairly large section about chronic pain in how emotions are made in my book, um, because the best available evidence suggests that chronic pain is your brain running a bad model of your body. So to understand how chronic pain works, um, um, or how we, what, at least our best available guess of how science, what scientists, the best available evidence that we have right now, you know, that could change if, you know, new evidence comes to light. But right now, the way it seems is that, you know, your brain is 
um, as I said, it's receiving sense data from your body continuously all the time, just like it's receiving sense data from the world through your eyes and ears and so on. It's receiving sense data from the sensory surfaces of your body about the conditions of your body. And when your brain predicts correctly, those sense data just confirm the prediction and then the actions actions inside your body, you know, to change your lungs contracting or your heart, you know, contracting or whatever, your gut oscillating um, or um, predictions that turn into motor, skeletal motor actions, like you move your limbs or your eyes or, or, what, or your facial muscles or what have you. But when your brain is wrong, when, when sense data comes, to, you know, from the sensory services to the brain that were, was unexpected or when um, the expected sense data doesn't materialize. That's called prediction error. There's an error of prediction. And errors of prediction are considered teaching signals because it's an opportunity for the brain to update its model, to update its experience so that it can predict better next time. And we have a fancy name for updating your predictions. We call it learning. That's what learning is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the thing is that learning that is updating your model is expensive metabolically. It's more expensive than predicting. Mm -hmm. And so if you're already metabolically encumbered, let's say you're, there's a drag on your metabolism because I don't know, you actually have had tissue damage somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, then it's harder for your brain to update. <laughs> and your brain might not update. It might just go with the model that it has. And so in a situation, um, so for example, um, you know, I just had a major back surgery about a year and a half ago. I guess, I guess it's almost a year and a half ago now. It feels like it was yesterday, but a year and a half ago, but major back surgery. And that was, I would call real tissue damage. They opened up my, you know, they, I had to have several vertebrae fused and um, and that sense data called nociceptive data, nociceptive signals, which are the sensory signals of damage, um, you know, went to my brain and I experienced pain. Okay. But if my brain had not, as my back healed, if my brain didn't, um, update its model, as I healed, I would still be feeling pain. Because mm -hmm. what you feel is not in your body, it's in your brain. Your brain is guessing at the sensory state of your body. But when you, you know, when you feel a pinprick in your hand, in your skin on your hand, you're not feeling it in your hand, you're feeling it in your brain. When you feel, you know, your um, heart, heart pounding in your chest, you're not feeling it in your chest, you're feeling it in your brain. When you see a tree or another person or a car in the world, you're not actually seeing in your eyes, you're seeing in your brain. You require a brain. The brain is the locus of everything that you experience. Mm -hmm. And so chronic pain is real pain. It's mm -hmm. real pain. It's just that it's called neurogenic pain because it's the pain is being created in your brain as a set of, sen as a set of sensory predictions that um, your brain hasn't cr corrected itself yet.
because the nociceptive signals are not are not there or they're not as strong anymore. And the things, you know, like for example, when I was recovering from surgery, I realized that in moments of real discomfort, like real pain, right? Real discomfort, the the tendency is to want to distract yourself or to medicate yourself. Mm. And sometimes you have to medicate yourself because you can't stand, you know, like right after surgery, I yeah. had to, I had to use some uh, opioids. I couldn't function without them, but I weaned myself off them very quickly because I knew that I had to feel some discomfort in order for my brain to update itself. And I think this is really, really profound because what we tend to do is whenever we feel really unpleasant about something, we tend to distract ourselves from it or try to reduce the unpleasantness or just get away from the unpleasantness. But mm. we sometimes don't realize that feelings of unpleasantness are sometimes an opportunity to learn something really important. And, and particularly if you've had, like in my case, I had, um, you know, titanium, you know, rods put in my back. And so for several, actually, even now, it's been more than a year, um, uh, you know, my doctor or my surgeon will ask me, are you feeling pain? And I'll say, well, I don't know. I don't think so. And that may sound kind of crazy. Like, how could you not know? But actually, what happens when somebody puts rods in your back is that now you're having a bunch of sensations you've never had before. And they're unusual, which makes them unpleasant just to begin with, because they're unusual. But is the unpleasantness pain or is it just lack of familiarity? And, mm -hmm. it, and so you have to, I have to remain curious about these sensations and not distract from them and not take Tylenol and ibuprofen to medicate them away because maybe this is just what it feels like to have metal rods in your back. And the interesting thing is that eventually what happens to sensations that are not useful to you is your brain um, filters them out. Mm, so, yeah. so for, for example, when you get your teeth, I don't know if you've ever had your teeth fixed, but anybody who's ever had like major dental surgery or even just had a tooth pulled or a crown replaced or whatever, for a while, your tongue is continually probing at the, you know, the different feeling in your mouth than, than what was there before. There's different mm. sensations there. And what that is, is your brain foraging for prediction error. It's foraging to learn the sensations so that it can filter them out um, because they're really not, you know, they're not useful to you. They're, they're generated by your own body and they're not useful to you. So chronic pain is, could be a problem with your brain not filtering out sensations that it should. It could be a problem with um, your brain not updating its model, but either way, people feel Yep. Just in, because everything you experience veridically, I mean, the experience is in your brain. I really think that that um, it's important to understand that. Um, sometimes with, and, and there, there are actually, um, forms of chronic pain, which are treated by not full blown exposure, but gradual exposure to the discomfort. Mm -hmm.
opposed to trying to turn down the discomfort with whatever means you can, um, that doesn't give your brain any chance to update itself. And so it just prolongs the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm now reminded of that section in your book where you, where you read about chronic pain. Um, I, I should go reread that part. Um, but um, uh, Alan Gordon, who's a famous psychotherapist, he has a book, The Way Out, and he outlines the process of recovering from chronic pain. Um, and he calls it somatic tracking or pain reprocessing therapy. Basically, the idea of you feel the pain and you send safety signals toward it. You, you're curious towards the pain. You're not afraid of it or running away from it. It's basically this, this meditative practice. And so, um, so, so, so when you're doing that kind of thing, you're, you're changing the signals towards that pain. And instead of having a fearful response, you're now being curious and open towards it. And so your brain then eventually learns to, um, uh, to, 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 to let go of that fear that's been capturing that, that part of your, your body or you're no longer sending signals of fear and of worry and of c catastrophizing. And instead, you know that, you're, that there's nothing to worry about. And so your brain then learns to filter out those sensations. Well, I would say, I mean, I, I don't think that my view of emotion is really that there are fear signals that your brain sends or anything like that. I, I think that what happens is that your brain is receiving sense data from your body and it makes sense of those sense data using past experience exactly the same way that your brain makes sense of a loud bang using past experience. So what I would say is that, um, that what mindfulness meditation does is it allows you to um, it really to try to experience the sensations without making meaning of them. So what I mean by that is um, that, you know, according to the international study, you know, there, there's this international society for the study of pain where a lot of people who study pain, you know, talk to each other. And there's a pretty good agreement that the experience of pain is a combination of um, no susceptive signals from the body plus um, uh, the um, other sensory signals from the body, which you experience as feelings of com comfort or discomfort, um, distress or pleasure, like simple affective feelings or mood, plus whatever meaning your brain is giving to those signals. And so what it means to be curious is to, um, when you have, uh, when there are a set of sensations that are unexpected, you know, your brain's attempt to learn will be associated with an increase in arousal because there are certain chemicals in your brain that uh, make it easier for neurons to update and um, like norepinephrine, for example, and that is usually associated with, uh, uh, not usually, but it's often associated with an increase in heart rate and feeling jittery and feeling, you know, your palms get sweaty and so on and so forth. So our go-to way of making sense of those sensations is anxiety or fear, but it is, that's not the only way to make sense of those. And so really what's happening is that there's no susceptive signals that are unexpected or some set of signals which are unexpected. 
and there's some uncertainty. And so when you feel really jittery and, and um, uh, you don't have to experience that as worry, you can experience it as uncertainty, <laughs> which yeah. means that, you know, you should be um, uh, foraging for information rather than avoiding the situation. And that may sound like, you know, sort of bullshit, you know, um, psychologizing, but it's actually a very powerful strategy that people can learn to use. And mindfulness meditation, what it does is it doesn't teach you that strategy, but what it does is it teaches you to experience sweaty palms as sweaty palms, not as anxiety. It teaches you to mm -hmm. experience um, the discomfort of, you know, um, of tissue damage somewhere in your body as discomfort, not as distress and suffering. And there's this wonderful research by um, a, a, a guy named Eric Garland, who's shown that with people who suffer from chronic pain, um, if you can teach them using mindfulness meditation to distinguish or to sort of separate a feeling of discomfort, that is the physical discomfort of the pain from the distress and suffering that they feel um, at having that pain, you can reduce their dependence on opioids in a very significant way. Um, because at a certain point, opioids, what they're doing at a certain point is re reducing distress. They're not really necessarily um, reducing um, discomfort um, when there's no actual problem in the body, no actual tissue damage in the body. At least that's the that's what it looks like. Mm. Um, so when there's actual tissue damage in the body, opioids are really helpful. Um, but people continue to take those opioids beyond after, you know, well beyond after um, uh, the tissue damage is healed because they're suffering in another way. And um, they're, they're attempting to reduce their suffering, which is profound. It's a profound suffering. So it's not so much that you're you're aiming safety signals at something or you're reducing fear signals or whatever, but what you're learning to do is you're learning to take a little bit more control over how you make sense of the sense data that is given to your brain by your body. Mm. Um, and there are that's a very, very powerful thing to be able to uh, have a little bit of control over. Nobody has, you can't control it. Like you control a dial on a radio of la you know, loudness, softness or whatever. You can't, nobody has complete control and getting that control, learning to have that control is actually much harder than it sounds. Um, oh, and yeah. no one has control as much control probably as they want to have. You can't like just flip a switch, but everybody mm -hmm. can have a little bit more control than they probably think they can mm. and, and can you just uh, put a finer point on on what you were saying earlier about how your brain eventually learns to um, f uh, filter out those sensations so like, like like somebody who's struggling with chronic pain like like in, in my case and many other people's cases they feel intense chest pain and worry and suddenly they're, they're super fearful now, if, if through mindfulness, if we're if we're learning to be be curious towards that pain and be open towards it and send quote unquote safety signals, as, as Alan Gordon would put it, I think I think that's a good way of subjectively describing, you know, what, what, what to exactly do when you're in this practice. 
And so eventually your brain then filters out that that pain and you're no 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 the what your brain so think about think about it this way um your um we're we we're we're vertebrates we're humans are belong to the you know the group of animals called vertebrates and we evolved eventually like originally right all animals evolved in the sea and when you're so imagine you're a fish and you um you can um you're being buffeted around by waves of water all the time you're in the dark you can't really see you don't you know you don't have very good eyesight because it's dark you don't have very good hearing because you're in the water and um and you have a you have a lateral line system for touch so you you have you can feel you know changes against your skin your scales but when you move, that causes sensory changes in your skin. When the water is just buffeting you around, that that produces sensory changes in your skin. When there's a predator or prey around, that also produces movement in the water, which is changes the sensory, you know, produces sensory changes um, that are from your skin that are sent to your brain. How does your brain know? Which of the sensory changes from your skin are predator or prey or just the water but being buffeted around by weather or a consequence of your own movements to swim? Well, it has to know. It has to figure out that problem or else you're going to die or you're going to starve or you're, you know, you're going to be constantly experiencing the sensory consequences of your own movements, which is like noise. Because then your senses aren't working to tell you what's out in the world. So your brain has to, there had to be an, uh, uh, the brain had to evolve a way to, to um, s filter out the co sensory consequences of its own movements so that the sense data that you receive is mostly about what's going on in the world that is not caused by your own movements. That's what the brain learns to filter. So yeah. when you get you know, work done in your mouth, like you get a tooth pulled or you get a, you know, a crown replaced or, or what have you. That information, that that's new sense data that your tongue and the rest of your mouth will, will take in, but it's not first, it's not diagnostic of much, right? Like there's nothing you can do useful with that information. And so your tongue is like probing at that new structure to get used to the sense, the sensory consequences of it being there. Like when you chew, you don't necessarily feel the sensory consequences of chewing unless you chew in a way that you didn't expect to chew. Like you, you know, you chomp on your, your um, tongue or you chomp on your, you know, your, the inside of your cheek or you break a tooth or something. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're not feeling the sensory consequences of moving your mouth but they're mm. there. It's just your brain is filtering them out. Mm. So chronic pain could be, um, there are many ways in which the brain's model could be not working properly so that you feel pain when there's no nociceptive damage. But one of them would be that um, your brain is not filtering out sensations. It should be because they're not useful to you. And, um, 
And so, you know, you continue to experience them. I mean, that's mm. a, that's mm. a hypothesis. I don't know that that's true, but it is a reasonable mm. hypothesis. So when I first started, you know, moving around after, um, I had surgery, I was having a whole set of sensations in my back. I'd never, ever, ever, ever had before. And I really mm. couldn't tell whether or not it was pain. It was uncomfortable, but I couldn't tell, is this the kind of discomfort that is just because it's new and unexpected or, or is it, um, is it actually a sign that something's wrong? And I really mm. didn't know. And I still sometimes don't know. And of course, because there's uncertainty, I have an increase in arousal, which I could experience as anxiety. It would be very easy for me to be to experience it as worry. Mm. But instead, what I do is I remind myself that arousal, feeling that kind of jittery arousal doesn't have to be worry. It can just be a yeah. sign of uncertainty and um a signal to be curious and forage for more information. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Th this is all super interesting. And I'm, I, I keep on thinking about my own life too. And, and I don't usually like to tie it as uh, t t tie these conversations as much to myself, but I, I will say like for my chronic pain history, you know, I, 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 I tend to develop certain kind of, injuries playing sports or doing other things like in my knee I had tendonitis one time and then in my elbow and my wrist over the span of a few years and then last year I think either from allergies or from being on the computer too much I developed this like really strong burning pain in my right eye to the point where I would have to close my eyes for several hours and and uh, 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 otherwise I would have really bad headaches and I'd be unable to do anything else and there, there's like this pattern of there's an initial injury or a micro injury or, or some kind of adverse little experience. And it, there might be an initial diagnosis of, okay, maybe it's tendonitis or it's a sprain or it's overuse or any of these kind of more nebulous things. And then still after a few months, the, all the symptoms are still there and doctors are scratching their heads and they're like, what? we don't know what's going on here. You know, it, it, sh it should have been healed if there was something serious going on in the first place. And so based off of what you're saying and what, what you suggest in your book, it seems like my brain is just not as efficient or as strong at updating its models. It seems to get stuck in these models and continues to feel these sensations of pain and thereby keeping the cycle of fear and of worry and of anxiety. So that, that's, that's all very interesting. It's very helpful stuff. Um, I think there, I, you know, if the, um, thousands of emails that I've received from people or any indication, then um, this is really helped. This is a, th this, you know, even though we don't know everything about how the brain predicts, and we certainly don't know everything about the, um, you know, about the role of prediction in, in chronic pain, it does seem to be helpful to people to understand that you, um, you aren't a prisoner of your um, feelings and your, of your experiences and that your brain can train itself to predict differently. It's just not easy. Um, um, and it requires persistent investment of, of, of energy, but, but so does any learning, any skill, you know? Mm. 
Yeah, and uh, the, 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 there's a million other questions I have for you, but I'll just we'll focus on just one thing before we go here, and then that's um, effective realism. You talk about that in both your books, um, the idea that you construct your own reality, your, your past experiences and feelings shape the reality you see. And it, it, it's interesting because I've been talking to a lot of people in my family and outside of my family, um, as I've been doing a lot of reporting on, on psychedelic therapy and depression and PTSD. It's interesting how when you talk to people, you know, they just, you know, people who are depressed or who have PTSD, they describe their reality as very dark, grim, mundane, very gray. And it's, 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 it's interesting. Even people who have, you know, seemingly happy marriages and have kids and um, have all the, the luxury in the world that they would ever want. And they see the world as very dark and gray. And that's, I guess that, that goes to show that it, it's not, you know, some, somebody who's depressed can sometimes find reasons to be depressed of, oh, this, this thing in my life really sucks, or this, this thing isn't working out right now. But oftentimes it's, it's not necessarily something just external. It's, it's, it's internal. It's coming from their own minds, from their past experiences and their, their emotions and their feelings. It's, it's shaping a world um, that when, when another person talks to them, they're not seeing this dark gray world that they're seeing and so, so two people can look at something very similar or identical and have very different views of it because of this phenomenon of effective realism, right? Yes. I mean, I think it's important to understand that depression is a metabolic illness, right? So it, it, depression really stems from a persistent metabolic load or drag that your that your energy regulation is inefficient for some reason or your, your brain believes it's inefficient and um and that's related to feeling persistent distress and negative mood and the your brain's beliefs about the state of your body actually influence literally how the sensory surfaces of your body for or, or how the brain receives sense info sense data from your eyes and your ears and so on so for example there's research showing that you know your brain's tracking of your respiration influences like what information you take in from your about sounds and about about you know visual uh, signals in the world and so on so it's not just that, you know, we see the world through affect or mood colored glasses. We, we, we certainly do interpret things um, in line with our mood, but also the state, the physical state of our body, which we experience as mood, like consciously, we, you don't have an awareness of all the things going on inside your body. Your brain makes itself, a, 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 makes that information available to you as your mood or your affect. That influences literally what you see and literally what you hear and not just the meaning of it, but literally like what signals do you gain, gain access to? And I don't think we know, I, I, I think we've only barely scratched the surface at understanding the science of this, but um, you know, when someone is experiencing the world in a very different way than you are, um, it, it's again, it's, 
it's usually a good idea to be curious about that, even if you find it distasteful or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you find their their experience or their way of understanding things, you know, not to your liking. Yeah. Um, because um, there's there's an opportunity for you potentially to learn something really important. And that's that's it's like it's easier said than done. OK, <laughs> yeah. for even for those of us who who know that that's, you know, how you know how. But there's this there's this Buddhist saying that I really like, which is um, anger is a form of ignorance. Mm, yep. And the mean what it means is that, you know, your way of seeing the world when you don't take into account other people's way of seeing the world, you can be furious at them. But 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 the minute you try to ha- take perspective, try to see things from their perspective just for a minute, your anger usually dissolves. You, you still might not like the situation and you might not yep. like the way they see things and you might not agree with it, but they stop being villains and they just become people you disagree with. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, just one other question on my mind and you you might have to give a shorter answer if you you have to go right away, but I've just been looking at just various tools for, for anxiety, fear, worry, and there's all sorts of therapies and whatnot. And one thing I've been doing a lot of research on is of just doing deep breathing for, for people who tend to have overactive sympathetic nervous systems when they're always kind of hypervigilant and jittery and anxious. Um, Is is that something you've looked into at all? Like deep breathing, those kind of practices to kind of buy, to kind of use our biological tools to relax our bodies and to be more calm and centered and um, in the present moment, rather than being reactive, worried and hyper anxious, um, are, are those things you've looked at at all? Um, yeah. So breathing, yeah. breath, I will say not all deep breathing is the same. You you have to think about how many breaths you're taking per second and what's the resonance and, of the signals that are being resulting from that. But in general, deep breathing, breathe, breath is the way that you can gain access to your autonomic nervous system. Mm. Breath is is one way to modulate your parasympathetic nervous system which is the other branch of your autonomic nervous system. Actually, your autonomic nervous system has three branches, enteric for your gut and sympathetic and and parasympathetic. Sympathetic and parasympathetic branches mostly, not completely, mostly innervate the same organs. So breath is a good way to calm yourself down. But again, you know, if you're, if you're breathing slowly enough, you might actually cause yourself to hyperventilate. So you have to be really careful how you do it. And you also have to remember it is not a magic pill, meaning mm-hmm. you, you're not just going to stop deep breathing for a couple of minutes and then feel better. Yeah. It takes, it's a skill that takes practice. Um, mm-hmm. And um, the reason why it keeps you centered is because if you're concentrating on your breathing, you're not ruminating about a million other things right so i think the important thing to understand here is you have to practice deep breathing a couple of times a day for a couple of minutes a day for a long time for it to become a useful tool for you Mm. yeah it's not it's not something yeah it's not something that you just do once or twice and then feel better you know 
Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, I've, I've done it a few times. And obviously, I'm, t- I'm talking about longer exhales, shorter inhales. And I did, I did it a couple of times. And I'm like, I, I still feel jittery. And I looked at my heart monitor watch, and it didn't really go down that much. And I was like, yeah, oh, well, short yeah. inhales and longer exhales are not what you want. I mean, um, that's what you do. You know, that's what I do when I'm working out. But uh, that's not what I would do for for deep breathing exercises. To really? That, that's right. That's what I've read like everywhere for, for calming well, down. You, you may have read it everywhere, but I'm reading scientific papers. So I don't, I don't read the, 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 interesting. you know, I don't read popular science for the purpose of, I sometimes read it for entertainment, but I certainly don't read it for actually to find out how things work. I actually go to the scientific papers and um, I mean, you know, I'm not dissing popular science. I write popular science too. I'm just saying that when I want to learn something, I don't go, I might, I, if I want to learn something in, physics i might start with a popular science book and then i'll go into the reference section and get the actual papers and probably have to go see a physicist to help explain it to me but um if i want to understand how breath works i'm not going to read a popular science book i'm going to actually go to the literature to yeah i was i was referring to dr andrew huberman who's a great neuroscience podcast he's at stanford he is actually uh, andrew's work is is really great um, I, so, for he, sure. so he talks about that. So it's a longer mm-hmm. exhales, shorter inhales. Yeah, that my my reading of it is my reading of the literature is that you um, you want a long inhale and a long exhale, and it's usually somewhere between six and eight seconds. Um, sometimes it's as long as nine seconds. It just depends on you and your nervous system, and you have to practice or you know like fiddle around with it. And there are some apps actually with some. Um, technology that can help can help you figure out where where do you get the best resonance for for your nervous system mm-hmm. you know your lungs um you know is it six seconds is it second sec seven seconds but usually it's a paced inhale and a paced exhale mm-hmm. um that's what i'm familiar with the short inhale like three second inhale and a six second exhale i do that when i'm exercising actually to um but I'm not doing it for the purposes of being calm. I'm doing it for the purposes of, you know, other things like tensing my abs or getting enough, uh, you know, getting uh, air into my lungs or uh, deeply into my lungs or what have you. Anyways, I'm going to have to run, sure. but um, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So again, sorry for the, uh, the ir- irritation at the beginning yeah, <laughs> of okay. technology. Yeah. But, uh, no worries. Yeah, yes. Thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm a fan of your work, fa- fan Thank of your you. book. So it, it was yes. good to, to have you on. And and then, by the way, you you seem to know how to organize really wild, fun birthday parties, as I've learned. <laughs> I do feel like that is one of the skills I picked up in being a mom, for sure. I assume you don't do that anymore with with your daughter. Um, or well, she's 23. I I would if she let me, but she's not <laughs> interested in having me plan her birthday parties anymore. So yeah, is, is she also doing like neuroscience psychology? Is she no, no. No, she she chose a completely different field. So she's um she didn't want to do what either of her parents did. So she's she's a person of her of her own mind, I would say. Interesting. Well, I'm like that too. So yeah. There you go. All right. Cool. Thank you. Peace All right. Up.